it is said that at the time of a former Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, there was an ascetic named Sumedha who had been practicing during that time. Now, Dipankara Buddha was before our time, which is the time of Gautama Buddha. Eons and eons and eons before. And one day when Sumedha was in on his alms round in the village, there was a big commotion in the village and there was a big celebration being planned. So he inquired as to what was going on. <clears throat> and he was told that Dipankara Buddha would be coming to town that day. And the villagers were preparing the, to greet him. So Sumedha Buddha was interested to see a Buddha. And so he got assigned a section of the roadway to prepare by sweeping the roadway and putting flowers on the path or something. And when Dipankara Buddha came into view and was walking towards him, Sumedha, who had practiced uh, the spiritual teachings of his time to perfection and had obviously a very, very well-developed mind of tranquility and concentration, he saw the... he saw Dipankara Buddha with some extraordinary vision and just realized what a magnificent being this was. And he felt moved to aspire to become a Buddha like Dipankara Buddha, one who is free of all forms of suffering and who acts compassionately in the world to help others or to free others from suffering. And so he was moved by the radiance of Dipankara Buddha and he silently in his own mind aspired or made a vow to become a Buddha in some future lifetime. Dipankara Buddha, being who he was, saw this ascetic on the side of the road and said, and, and realized, oh, that ascetic had just made the vow to become a Buddha like himself. And so he did a quick scan of his karmic burden and realized that if that ascetic Sumedha had heard a single word of teaching from Dipankara Buddha, he would have on the spot become fully enlightened if he'd heard a single word of teaching. But he didn't teach him. He just acknowledged to him that at some future date he would become a Buddha. So at that point, the ascetic Sumedha became a Bodhisattva, one who was destined to become a Buddha. Subsequent to that lifetime as, an ascetic, as the ascetic Sumedha, he lived hundreds of lifetimes. Now remember, he was already so clear in his mind that if he'd heard a single word of teaching, he would have become a Buddha. But instead, he underwent hundreds of more lifetimes in all kinds of forms, as animal and human and royalty and beggars and just everything, in order to perfect the paramis, in order to perfect the wholesome qualities of mind that a Buddha possesses. Generosity, sila, 
renunciation, determination, energy, wisdom, loving-kindness, patience, etc. In some of the stories of the Bodhisattva's life, when you read them and you, you, you see the tremendous ordeals that he had to go through to train his mind to perfect... Uh, these qualities of mind, so that they became the default setting of his mind. You just think, why in the world would anyone ever want to do that? Well, it was out of compassion. Out of this sincere wish to be able to help other suffering beings that he developed this tremendous, uh, these tremendous qualities of mind. Born as Prince Siddhartha in India, 2,500 years ago, nearly 2,600 years ago. Um, The prince lived a a regal life for 29 years. Uh, But his karmic impulsion, his karmic momentum, was to become a Buddha. He didn't know that. He was a prince. But, you know, he wasn't quite at ease with the palace life, so he made arrangements to, we say, to step outside, to go outside the protection of his father's kingdom or to see the world, to leave his home. And when he did, he saw what are called the four heavenly messengers, an old person, a sick person, a corpse. And when he saw those three, he asked his charioteer, what, what's going on with these, with these people? And he was told, oh, this, this is a human being and they're old, they're getting old, or they're sick, or they have died. And the Bodhisattva had been protected from that knowledge. But because of his development of mind already, when he was told that all beings grow old, get sick and die, he got it. Meaning, he didn't just hear it, he really understood it, that this was going to happen to him too. And this so unnerved him, so to speak, that he resolved to find a way to be free of that suffering. He also saw the fourth heavenly messenger, which was the renunciate, someone who was serene, calmly going about there, collecting of alms, and was quite noticeably at ease in the world, and asked about him, and was told that, oh, this is someone who's devoted their life to uh, you know, ending, ending their suffering. And so the, the Bodhisattva, we could say, he realized his karmic obligation, really, and left the palace, went to spiritual teachers of his day, undertook severe austerities and spiritual practices, perfected all the uh, concentration practices that were available and taught as the path of liberation. But even after perfecting all of them, he realized this is not, this is not freedom. This is not liberation. This is not the end of suffering. And so he went on his own to find his own way 
without the guidance of Dipankar Buddha and no other spiritual teachers of his day, he found a way through mindfulness and ultimately insight to liberate the mind from suffering. When he realized the truth, the truths, and became the Buddha, he spent seven weeks near the Bodhi tree, just um, blissing out, we'd say, or something like that, enjoying the bliss of, of liberation. And then he considered what to do, and he was prevailed upon by some heavenly being to share his knowledge with those who have but little dust in their eyes, meaning those who, with the teachings and some practice, might also realize the end of suffering. And so he decided to teach or to share what he'd learned. In his first discourse, or his first discussion, of what he had learned, he spoke with the five ascetics that had practiced with him. They had kind of, when, as a bodhisattva, he'd started eating food and gone off to find his own way, they kind of abandoned him. They just said, you're, you're off the track. But now they could see that there's something unique about this him now that he'd become a Buddha. And when he spoke to them, he told them what he had discovered or what he had understood about the nature of reality and the nature of suffering and the end of suffering. And so he taught them the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths has been the um, bedrock or the essential Dhamma wherever the teachings of the Buddha had gone from India to China and Tibet and Japan, Korea, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, all traditions understand the Four Noble Truths and have built their own cultural expressions and practices upon it, but they all agree on this is something the Buddha taught. So it's important that we too here, since we are practicing some of the Buddha's teachings, we have some affinity for what we've heard and practicing, it's important that we also hear the teachings on the Four Noble Truths so that we can understand not just what we're getting out of mindfulness practice and the development of insight, but what the potential is for what we have yet to practice and, and realize for ourselves. So whether, whether there is a Buddha in the world or not, the truth is the truth. The way things are is the way things are. The uniqueness of a Buddha is here is someone who has through their own efforts, has observed the way things are, come to understand them in the way of a Buddha, and was able to share that knowledge with others. Out of all that the Buddha knew, and it is said that a Buddha can know anything they put their mind to, out of all that he knew, he chose first to speak of the Four Noble Truths, just to give an indication of how significant or the predominance or the preeminence of the Four Noble Truths in the Buddhist teaching. So tonight I'm going to speak about at least three of them. 
first noble truth is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means the truth, and so the first noble truth is the truth of Dukkha. Now, Dukkha has a number of meanings, and there are a number of experiences that we have that are considered Dukkha, so I want to speak about that. Now, when I first started practicing the Dharma 40 years ago, I heard the talk on the Four Noble Truths, you know, First Noble Truth, Life Suffering. As I mentioned earlier today, I was 26. I was young and healthy and energetic and full of piss and vinegar and suffering. How was it suffering? I went to this two-week retreat. I was sitting up back. My body was in screeching agony. You know, my mind was driving me crazy with, you know, loneliness and vulnerability and you know, childhood conditioning that was not adequate, but and confusion and wandering mind and restlessness, but I wasn't suffering. <laughs> suffering was a word that was too scary for me. It was like I had this assumption or I had this belief that if I was suffering, I was a failure. That was my upbringing. You know, my upbringing was, you know, don't complain. You know, if you haven't got anything good to say, don't say anything at all. So, you think we were talking about dukkha in our family? <laughs> Ten years later, I went to Burma, and one of Saito Pandita's translators talked about dukkha as the oppressive nature of phenomena. I could get that. I could understand the oppressive nature of experiences in life. Whether it's just being hungry, being tired, being, being bothered by mosquitoes, or heat, that, 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 that wasn't suffering. That was just the oppressive nature of phenomena. So what I saw when I could open to that and begin to, begin to get a grip, get, a, get an understanding, begin to grok what dukkha meant, I realized that the first noble truth, even though we might say, oh, it is the truth of dukkha, it is the truth of there is suffering in life, is much more profound than we might initially think. Because we we often personalize our suffering. We think, oh, my, my fear, my anxiety, my insecurity, my vulnerability... It's just me. It's just because I haven't quite got it together. There's something wrong with me that I don't feel totally at ease and content with life. But really what the Buddha is pointing to is that all beings experience this truth of dukkha. It's not personal to you in the sense that it's yours and yours alone. <clears throat> all beings experience this. And so if we, if we, if we recognize our suffering as oh, poor me, this is mine and everybody else is free of this, or doesn't experience this, we really are missing the Buddhist teaching. The depth of it. So what does dukkha mean? Well, the first meaning of dukkha is pain. And it means the obvious physical pain, toothache, headache, backache, as well as the pain of being sick, or any kind of physical, 
obvious physical ailment. Just sit in one posture too long and it hurts. Pain. It's obvious. There's obvious mental pain. The experience of vulnerability, the experience of loss, the experience of anxiety or fear, and all of the emotions that we were talking about last night is the torments of the mind. They're so obvious that they're forms of suffering. And yet, because we personalize them as, oh, it's my vulnerability, it's my fear, it's my... We miss the understanding that the Buddha is pointing to, that these are universal. All beings experience these. So this kind of obvious physical and mental suffering is called dukkha dukkha, just so you get it. (laughs) But there's a second meaning to the word, and sometimes when we... when we hear the first noble truth, we talk about pain. This is what we get. We get the first one, pain, and, and physical and mental emotional pain. We get it. But there's a second meaning of the word dukkha pointing to our experience that is subtler, but equally, if not more important, to, to get. And it's called viparinama dukkha. And it is pointing to the fact that things change. So what this means is that while right now all of us are living in the West, we have discretionary time, we have pretty good enough health to be here, we've got enough resources, financial resources to be here, we, have, we can understand what's going on, all our faculties are working, and, you know, things are pretty good. But just on the periphery of our awareness is the fact that everything can change instantly. And so we are forever vulnerable and insecure in our ease and pleasantness that we enjoy at the present moment. And we know how quickly things can change. You know, a little over three years ago, I think, the uh, earthquake and the tsunami that washed over northern Japan, one of the islands in Japan, those people were going about their life just like we do every day, living out their careers and families and purchases and with their homes and retirement accounts and farms and food and all their dramas in their life. And whatever security they had built up with finances and family and material possessions and whatever it is they do and had done for all those years. And in the matter of an hour, things got washed away and their life was totally, all the things they had relied on, physical material things, gone. And not only that, the nuclear reactors nearby kind of did their thing and made it impossible to live there anyway. You know what? That's that's devastating. We all have this tsunami headed towards us. We all have this. 
whether it's a health tsunami, a financial tsunami, a relationship tsunami, a career tsunami, it's just it's just a matter of time, isn't it? And we know that. There's some part of us knows that we're just living on the edge of vulnerability and insecurity and at any moment things could change. So we have to say that even though conditions are pleasant, sunaa, uh, dukkha is hidden in pleasant experience because of the insecurity, the instability of those pleasant conditions. Yes, pleasant conditions are pleasant. They're not painful. But nevertheless, because they are changeable at a moment's notice, this is dukkha. And so we live with this vulnerability, this insecurity, this ever-present threat of our happiness being taken away. What can we do to insulate or inoculate ourselves from this insecurity, this vulnerability? Clearly we can't acquire more, do more, move to a different location, get a better position in our job. Everyone experiences this. Royalty experiences it. Titans of Wall Street experiences. Beggars on the street experiences. And everybody in between. This condition is not satisfactory. It's hard to say, I'm really satisfied. I can be totally content and satisfied with this condition. And that's why dukkha is often translated as unsatisfactoriness. Now, again, we can hear this and we think, yeah, but when we think of our situation, we think, well, it's just me. I haven't got, I haven't got my retirement count as full as I'd like to have it. You know, and I haven't got... You know, my health needs a little, you know, I need to do one more class of yoga every week and take a few more vitamins. And if I could just, just get a little, little bit more together, then you'd still experience this insecurity. But when we personalize it as my not having yet gotten it together, we miss the universal nature of what the Buddha is pointing to. And so... In a way, we kind of deny, avoid, minimize what the Buddha is actually saying to us. Because we feel like, you know, we are, we're brought up to feel like we should be able to get it together to feel secure, strong, stable, self-reliant. Not possible, if you look closely. Not possible. As if these two meanings and experiences of dukkha weren't enough, there's a third. It's called Sankara dukkha. And not only is there one Sankara dukkha, there's two, two, fa- two, two kinds of Sankara dukkha. There's the macro and the micro. So we'll start with the macro. We're born. That's painful for some people. And our parents and other caregivers doing the best they can have to take care of us. 
And so they feed us, and they bathe us, and they clothe us, and they cuddle us, and they coo us, and they wipe our bottoms, and they wipe our nose, and they change our diapers, and they do this many times a day, every day for a few years. And they try to keep us happy, you know, they keep us entertained, keep us cuckoo caca, you know, so, it, so that, you know, we're happy. Because if we're not happy, they're not going to be happy. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay. Then after, you know, or as soon as they can, they start to entrain aunts and uncles and siblings and peers and friends and neighbors and others to help carry the load, to keep you entertained. And eventually they pass you off into the educational system and whew, you get a little relief. But then you've got to deal with that. Okay. At some point, maybe age 7, 8, 10, 12, you begin to get it. Or we begin to get it. We're on our own. we got to do this. Now we got to take care of ourselves. Every day. We've got to bathe, groom ourselves. Get some sleep, move around, entertain the mind, and we got to do it. Nobody's going to do it for us. Mom and Dad says, you're on your own. Good luck. So, to get the food we need to provide for ourselves, we need money. To get the money, we need a job. To get a job, you got to go to school for 16 or more years. Now there's some dukkha. <laughs> <coughs> then you get paid on, on your payday and after working all day you get in the car you go to the grocery store with everybody else that just got out of work and you push your cart up and down the, the line the, the aisles looking for the food you want so you're picking up food food you know trying to get the best you can and you know hurrying through the checkout waiting in line and finally get everything into the car and drive it home and take everything out of the car take it all into the house unpack it from all the bags put it in all the shelves phew sit down have a drink Water. And <laughs> well, just, just to kind of help <laughs> settle things. And then a little while later, you go to the kitchen, you get everything out onto the cupboard, and you start chopping up, opening cans, or getting out the utensils, and spend an hour or so kind of making dinner. And then you, you, you sit down to eat, and it takes ten minutes. And uh, and gobble it down, and then then you got to clean up. That takes another fifteen minutes, and after that, you got to take the garbage out, and you got to empty yourself too. So you go to the toilet, and phew, now it's time to go to bed. Got to do that three times a day, every day. You have to take care of this body, and you got to bathe it every day. Because you know, if you don't bathe, or if you don't brush your teeth, if you don't comb your hair, just try not brushing your teeth for a month. That's that's dukkha. <laughs> So we have to take care of this body. And it's, it's, it's a chore. How many bad hair days have you had? Just think. How much, how much time and effort has gone into standing in front of the mirror and, well, I can see, you, you, you've, you've cut it short, really short, so you don't have to stand so long. But I know, there's, other th- there's been previous years. So, okay. Now, taking care of the body is not so difficult. I mean, it's difficult, but taking care of the mind is even more challenging because you have to entertain the mind. If you don't keep the mind happy, keeping it entertained, keeping it distracted, giving it what it wants, satisfying its insatiable needs, 
Well, it'll be just like being on retreat your whole life. You just watch this mind. Can't entertain it. Can't distract it. Can't listen to any music. Can't do anything. Can't even talk. Can't do... So we have to entertain this mind our whole life. And we have to do that or we'll get depressed. We'll get bored. We'll get frustrated. We'll be lonely. We'll be insecure. Okay. So we have to do that. We have to take care of this mind and this body every day for one, two, three, four, five, six. Some of us are in our seventh or eighth decade At the end of which, what happens? Your friends wrap you up in your best clothes that you have acquired, put you in a really fancy box, and look at you for one last time. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing we can laugh about it because this is what's going to happen. And they put you in a nice box and then they either put you in the ground hole in the ground or they put you in a fire <laughs> some would say that is a bad investment <laughs> I mean I'm sorry that this is the way it is it's a good thing we can laugh because it's, it's kind of pathetic it's kind of like okay however if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind to the grave keeping it as pleasant as it can be, we're wasting our time. We have an opportunity in this life to do much more than just seek pleasure unsuccessfully. We can really seek understanding. What is the purpose of it all? Where is it all going? We can recognize our own suffering. We can deal with our own suffering. We can help care for others' suffering. There's a way of developing our mind in practices like this and other practices that makes value out of this life which is really just going in, in a, a downward direction. We can make something of value of our life if we, if we do other than just carry this body and mind to the grave. That's the macro view of Sankara Dukkha. It's kind of like the existential angst of like, what can we do? We have to do this. There's no way to get out of it. Then there's the micro view. The micro view is we have six sense doors. We have the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind. And they are constantly being stepped stimulated. Constantly. The body's always feeling sensations. The eyes are always seeing, even when they're closed, we can imagine what we have seen previously. The ears, you can't stop them from hearing. Even in a sensory deprivation tank, you can hear your own circulatory system and nervous system. You can't get away. Even Bose headphones don't do it for you. <laughs> and the mind. You can't shut the mind off. The mind is constantly barraging us with thoughts and feelings and ideas and perceptions and it is a it is 
it takes a major commitment of time and interest and energy to even get a handle, a little bit of a handle, to turn the volume down. And this, these sense doors are being constantly stimulated all the time. As we become more sensitive, we begin to feel and recognize how oppressive that is. It's just oppressive. It's like you can't get out from under it. You have to deal with it. Many people, as we know, self-medicate themselves so they don't even notice it. And you can medicate yourself with TV and online games or, or alcohol and drugs and anything else. Distraction. To, to not recognize what's actually happening. To avoid it, to minimize it, to not deny it. To keep yourself so busy that you don't notice it. But in this practice, we're paying attention to, oh, this is the way it is. This is, what, this is what we feel. This is what we feel in the body. This is what we feel in the mind. So that when we become aware of suffering like this, we can do something about it. If you don't know you're suffering, you won't do anything about it. It is said that the first noble truth is to be investigated. Now we know, we all know we have pain in life, but we don't really open to the full extent of what the Buddha is pointing to in the first noble truth. Not just pain, but the fullness of the understanding of dukkha. And why do we want to investigate this? Because we're suffering. We suffer with these conditions even if we don't know that's what's going on. Okay. If, out of compassion for ourselves, our own suffering, we undertake this practice and discover pain, insecurity, vulnerability, the oppressive nature of phenomena, and willingly open to and to discover this this suffering, this pain and suffering, this is supreme compassion for yourself. Most people would say, that's not compassion. Why should I sit here? Because sitting still just causes my body to be full of pain. And why should I watch my mind? Because my mind's a mess. And it's all over the place. I'd rather, I'd rather not. Meditation causes me suffering. No, it doesn't. Mindfulness reveals the suffering that is hidden beneath the surface of our activity. It's already there. So, as I mentioned, Thayadu Upandita, the monk I was practicing with in Burma, very, very wise man. He knows the truth of Dukkha. And he knows that we don't know the truth of Dukkha when we come, when we first get there to practice. We don't know the truth of Dukkha. And so he asks us to practice. He demands that we practice. He encourages. He has a way of getting you to practice so that you will discover dukkha. He's not causing it. He's just encouraging you to practice, to investigate, so that you discover it for yourself. Because only then will you find the way to be free of it. So we're not just looking for a comfortable posture to avoid unpleasantness in sitting. 
we're not just looking for emotional intelligence to kind of be happy. We're looking for the solution to the end of all that dukkha I just spoke about. That's what the Buddha found. So this is the first truth, the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, to be investigated. So we can understand it. You can understand what I've just said. So now I have a question for you. Do you experience dukkha? Yes. Do you care about your dukkha? Yes. Why do you experience dukkha? Why do we experience this? The Buddha, or the Bodhisattva, looked at the source. Why is it that we experience this dukkha? And he saw, he discovered, he revealed, really, that the cause of this dukkha is craving. Craving in the form of wanting, attachment, longing, yearning, acquiring, getting, holding, having, owning, becoming, being identified with, all forms of craving, getting, having, holding. Okay. Clearly, we're not craving dukkha. Of course not. But I have this, I have had this assumption in my conditioning that if I could only get what I want, then I'd be happy. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound right? If we could only get what we want, then we'd be happy. Right? We have gotten most of what we want for all these years. We wanted an education, we got that. We wanted a relationship, we got that. We wanted a new car, we wanted a job, we wanted a career, we wanted this, we wanted that. We got it, we worked hard for it, we got them all. Happy yet? Content? Done? There's always more, isn't there? So what the Buddha saw is that whatever we have, well, we still have craving. We still have wanting more. So clearly, if we want something and can't have it or can't get it for whatever reason, that's, that's, that's dukkha. Right? But if we get what we want, that should be the end of dukkha. Right? But what do we want? Well, we want things. Whatever you get, if it is alive, well, it'll get sick and, and eventually die. If it's digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's emotional, it's very changeable. If it's valuable, it'll get... You've got to insure it because it could get stolen or the government will help themselves to a good portion of it, taxing it. And, well, whatever you get is, has its own problems in taking care of it. So we're left with this insecurity again that we need to protect, we need to take care of it, we need to defend it, we need to insure it, we need to keep it healthy, we need to keep it from rusting, whatever it is liable to. 
And so we say, okay, enough of this acquisition of stuff. I'm going to practice meditation and let go. So we come to meditate, we come to a retreat, and craving comes with us. What did you want today? Did you want to be comfortable in your sitting? Did you want to, yeah, you want to, be comfortable? Want to have a good sitting today? Yeah, we want to have a good sitting. You know, as I mentioned the other day, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day, if not the rest of your retreat. Because you think, ah, there. Now I've finally got it calm, clear, open, relaxed, loving, compassionate. This is the way it's going to be forever. <laughs> I don't even have to say. We know that's not true. Okay, so it's clear that we crave pleasant experience. We like to be comfortable. Physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, financially, economically, psychologically, in every way. We want to be we want pleasant experience. And we try. We we really try hard to get that. And the results are in. We're not very good at getting it. Or we're good at getting it, and we still have plenty of unpleasantness, right? It is also said, or the Buddha revealed, or discovered, or acknowledged, that we crave continued existence. What's that mean? That sounds kind of formal, kind of esoteric. Well, what it means is, well, let me just ask you, did you do any planning today? Do you have a planning mind today? Now, what is planning mind? Planning mind is imagining the future that's always better than it is now. Right? We, don't, we don't crave a future that's not as good as now. So we're always craving a future. We want, we want something better in the future. And, while, and when we work towards it and get it and experience it, we're craving even more futures. We never stop. So we are craving continued existence all the while that we're enjoying what we craved previously. You wanted to come to this retreat. You know, that, was a, that was an idea. That was, that was a future that you'd imagine for yourself being pretty good, pretty nice. Now here you are. And we're craving... I hope this retreat ends soon. <laughs> it's like, that's the way it goes. We're always looking for happiness out there. Satisfaction out there. This is called samsara, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Right? The Buddha said, the Buddha was nothing if not thorough. He said, we also crave the end of existence or non-existence. Now, what's that mean? That sounds pretty scary. You know, when we get, we sit down and we get, we have a bad sitting. And the mind is all over the shop. The body is itching. The mind is restless. And it's just, you, you can't remember what you're supposed to do. And you're just having, well, just a, a heck of a time. You know, and you, you just wish, geez, I hope the bell rings. <laughs> I wish this was over. I wish I didn't have to experience this. Right? Don't... What's that mean? I wish I didn't have to experience this. We don't want, we don't want to be here if it's going to be like that. And so we have plenty of experiences that are oppressive, that are painful, that are just unbearable, 
that we just don't want to have to deal with. So we imagine, we crave, we somehow think of not having to do... We're not going to do anything to... You know, most of us are not going to do anything to effect non-existence. But the thought is in our mind that we still crave it. We crave so much. We want so much. But recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. And what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. Studies of lottery winners and those who who have experienced catastrophic illness or calamities, after a year, their baseline happiness is the same as before they won the lottery or before the catastrophic illness. Baseline happiness and sense of well-being is the same. Winning the lottery didn't change anything. Catastrophic illness didn't really change baseline happiness. So we can only conclude that we really don't know what will make us happy. We really don't know. And our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. Happiness is not dependent on external conditions, but more so on the quality of our mind. We know that. We're practicing Buddhist meditation. We know that. Science or studies are revealing what we've known to be true or what we have sensed or intuited. It's said that the first noble truth is to be investigated. We have to look hard. We have to look really in a close, refined way to discover the extent of dukkha. It is said that the second noble truth of craving is to be abandoned. Okay, so the Buddha discovered the two noble truths. There's dukkha, caused by craving. Good luck! But luckily, he he also revealed the third noble truth. So the third noble truth is the Buddha's statement that there is an end to dukkha. There is an end to craving. And sometimes it's talked about in these very lofty, you know, seemingly far off, far out experiences of enlightenment or nibbana or the end of suffering and the end of greed, hatred and delusion and we say when? where's my ticket? You know, or how do I get there? and often it seems disconnected from what we're actually doing here today so rather than elaborate on the far out esoteric you know, hypotheticals I want to talk about what we experience today that partially confirms the third noble truth. So there are many ways that we experience what I would call dukkha-free zone. Okay. You know, we, we live in this pool of dukkha, or with this condition of dukkha, and there are many ways that we experienced it today. So one way is, you know, when you're sitting... You're practicing mindfulness, and 
you notice that you're, you've been entangled in this proliferating thought, thought bomb that's just totally consumed your mind and you notice it and you go, oh, I don't have to do that now. And we could just let go of that, well, entangled, snarly, suffering, trying to figure something out that we don't know we're doing it, we're just kind of lost in it, obvious dukkha. And mindfulness remembers to recognize it. And we go, oh, okay. And in that moment, in that moment, there's a, a moment of relief, isn't there? You're just like, oh, okay, dukkha-free zone. Yeah. When I went to the university, I studied engineering initially, and it was back before handheld calculators and things like that, so everything was done with longhand math, slide rule and longhand math. So there was a lot of calculating, and I had to take a lot of advanced math classes, and so I was really quick and good at mental mathematics. Okay, So, soon after university, I go on my first retreat, and, you know, like everybody else, you know, when my mind wandered away from the present, it wandered into mathematical calculations. <laughs> and so I would come to, I'd be, you know, I'd be off, you know, kind of, in my mind, just kind of multiplying out all these things and dividing them, you know, and it's just kind of, you know, and I'd be like, oh, that's not so. and I, I'd remember to recognize the present moment, I'd go, uh, do I need to be doing this now? No. And just to, just to let go of whatever the mind is holding on to, it's like, oh, it's such a relief. Now we all experience that today in some form, right? Just a moment. It's just a moment of dukkha-free, dukkha-free zone. Okay, so there's a second way that we experience uh, dukkha-free zone. And that is when we see the torments we're working with them, or we see them leave the mind, or we experience a continuity to remembering to recognize the present moment. And as we remember to recognize the present moment, the mind is not invaded by these torments, we're not tortured, and there is an ease to, and a momentum to, in what we call seclusion of mind. The mind is secluded from the torments. So the mind is not off thinking about anything, it's just calmly being present, you know, maybe for one breath or two breaths or, 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 or 15 seconds or a minute and a half or whatever it is, you're just at ease, you're just being with things the way they are. And we don't experience in that moment any suffering, no anxiety, no stress, no nothing, just clear, continuous knowing. A kind of dukkha freeze there's a third way that we experience um, even greater or subtler a dukkha-free zone, and that's with the development of what are called the seven factors of awakening. There are three energizing factors, energy, investigation, and joy, and there are three tranquilizing factors, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And as we practice mindfulness, just, just by being mindful of whatever it is you're mindful of, these 
three energizing and three tranquilizing factors are gradually but slowly developing. At some point, we begin to feel the momentum of this effortless energy and interest balanced with this calm, non-reactive observation. So we have this smooth, well, more equanimity, a balanced state of mind that is just able to be with whatever arises for a more sustained period of time. And with this equanimity comes uh, the, the, ref- the subtlety of the mind is reflected in the subtlety of objects. So the objects become very light, very ephemeral, very insubstantial. And so it's like things are just very soft. The whole body feels soft. Everything about the mind is soft. It's not, there's no hard opinions, no hard uh, feelings. It's very soft and gentle. This is pleasant. Hard to find something to complain about when the seven factors of awakening are developed and brought into balance. There are times in the development of these factors where joy becomes predominant before it becomes balanced. And when joy, or piti it's called in Pali, when that arises due to the continuity of mindfulness, when mindfulness is continuous for some period of time, the mind is secluded from the torments, and the mind takes great delight in being able to do what it does without any hindrance. And this is not because you're thinking about something and enjoy it. It's like the mind's activity is unhindered. When that happens, the body just gets enlivened, the mind gets enlivened. It's just like, wow, you're just along for a ride. And it can be, well, anything from, wow, fascinated, effortless, and delightful interest to ecstatic. Just being passed out ecstasy. See anything wrong with that? It's hard to consider that dukkha, except that it changes. But in the moment, there's not that dukkha dukkha. So, through the development of mind, we get to experience that. When that matures, with a little more continuity of mindfulness, then all that ecstasy just kind of calms down, thankfully, to bliss. You know, none of this ecstasy, you know, this kind of over the top, mainlining joy, let's just kind of get a little drip feed. Okay. Nothing to complain about that either. But, from that place of equanimity, where the mind is balanced, there's another kind of relief from dukkha that appears. And that is insight. We begin to understand, we begin to realize the truth of impermanence, the truth of the dukkha characteristic, the truth of the ephemeral, conditional nature of things. And when we do, when we see that, when we have that understanding, when we get this insight, or as we gather experiences to reveal this insight, the mind takes great delight. It lets go. Because it sees that well, everything is changing rapidly. What is there to hold on to? 
minus God. We see that everything has the characteristic of dukkha. It's either painful or it's vulnerable, it's insecure, it's oppressive. And when the mind sees that and understa- understands it, not just sees it, but understands it, the mind, the mind realizes it's not worth holding on to. So where there is no craving and holding, there is no dukkha. And so too with the anatta characteristic. When you see that things are compounded, they're created by other things, they are ephemeral, they're evanescent, they're ever-changing, they're just insubstantial, they're impersonal really. When you see that, you also see there's nothing really substantial to hold on to for your security. And so the mind again just lets go. So when there's no holding, there's no grasping, there's no craving, because of this balanced understanding, realization in the mind, then there's no result in dukkha. Okay. Subtle, serene, uh, I don't know what to say, soft, clear. At that point, at that time, when the mind is balanced, when the mind is seeing these characteristics, it is then that the mind can fall into the unconditioned. The unconditioned is Nibbana. And it's only from this place of supreme, serene balance and understanding that the mind falls into Nibbana. Nibbana is this end of suffering. It is said that it's ineffable. This is the third noble truth. This is the peak of the Buddha's understanding of the end of suffering. It's ineffable. It has no size, shape, color, texture. It doesn't have any duration of time. It doesn't have any flavor. Its characteristic is peacefulness. It is a reality that can be known. It's not just an idea. It's not tranquility, it's not joy, it's not bliss, it's the unconditioned, it's not created by anything, and yet it can be known, it can be realized. When the mind falls into, or leaps into, or stumbles into Nibbana, it forever changes the mind. There's no going back. And what changes with that first taste of Nibbana is the belief in an enduring self in here is uprooted. Not just put it through, put aside. It's uprooted. It does not, that idea, that belief, no longer arises in the mind. Also, doubt. Doubt about the path of practice leading to liberation. Doubt about the Dharma. No more doubt. You now know the, the mind now knows the path. Yes, there's more work to be done. There's still some, in, in the grosser forms of desire, aversion, and all those uh, other uh, affiliated mental states, pride and uh, depression and frustration, disappointment. The grosser forms of all those removed from the mind. 
you still have to practice. There's still there's still aversion. There's still desire. There's still pride. There's still restlessness. There's still sleepiness. There's, there's still lots of room for improvement. But the faith and the confidence in the Dhamma, no more doubt, is assured. And this sense that there's this internal being here, ever-present being, is uprooted. Both those understandings are a huge relief as we move forward on this path. That's why we practice. That's why we need to understand the nature of dukkha. That's why we need to understand the path of practice that leads to the wisdom that can uproot them. The path to be developed <clears throat> is a noble eightfold path. Just what we're doing here. Purifying our speech and behavior of uh, transgressive torments by keeping the precepts. Purifying our mind with mindfulness of obsessive torments. Purifying the mind of obsessive torments <clears throat> so that we can enjoy the harmony of secluded mind or calm mind and then purifying our understanding with the practice of insight seeing into the three characteristics uprooting the latent torments from the mind this is, the, this, is, this is what we've been doing this is the development of the Eightfold Path that will realize the third noble truth the end of suffering the end of dukkha the end of craving Why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? He said, because it's beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. It leads to cessation. It leads to peace. It leads to direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. The third Zen patriarch, in his verses on the faith mind, says in part, The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. And when the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.